Well, good morning, everyone. It's rainy and nasty here in Dallas today. So for those of you who aren't here, good for you. But for those of you who are here in Dallas, we are going to be having a bright, shiny Bible study together. And so I'm glad that you have joined me this morning. We are nearing the end of our class on Daniel. We will be moving to Revelation in just two weeks. Next week will be the final class for Daniel, where we'll look at chapters 11 and 12. And I'm actually going to be out next week. So Mary Lessman is going to be here to teach chapters 11 and 12 and really kind of close Daniel up. And I'm really excited about that. For those of you who don't know Mary, she's a fantastic teacher. And I think you will really, really enjoy your time with her next Wednesday. But for today, we're going to be looking at chapter 10. And chapter 10 is one of those interesting chapters where it begins a longer series. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 really combine into one larger story. So today we're going to be looking at the first third-ish, kind of the first half, really, of the whole story of chapters 10, 11, and 12 that close out the book of Daniel. So a reminder to those of you who have not joined our email list, we'd love for you to be a part of the email list so that you get reminded of class and the chapters we're reading and all of that good stuff. And so visit our website, stmichael.org RBS, which is Rector's Bible Study, or you can send Meredith Rose a note either on Facebook or YouTube if you're watching on a social platform, um, or on the website, stmichael.org RBS. Her email address is there, and you can send her a note with your information to be added to our email list. Make sure that you are up to speed each week with what we are studying and get the links to be able to view um, at your convenience. So a reminder as well that I love questions. And we've been getting great questions during the week. I think it's because Daniel's a little dense. And so we get more questions during the week than we do during the study, which is just fine. But if you've got some questions that you've brought from previous weeks, or if there's something today that really trips off a thought or a question, then please do write in either Facebook or YouTube in the comment threads so that we can get to those this week or just send Meredith an email during the week and we collect them for next week's study and we'll pass those questions on to Mary just like I would normally handle them during class. Lastly, we're still relatively distant from each other trying to stay safe, especially as infection rates rise. And so say hi to each other here. Let us know you are here. Let us know where you are from, especially if you're not from St. Michael. And join this online community for Bible study, which I am so grateful for. So let's kick it off with a prayer, and then we'll be together for the study. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for the gift of this life. We give you thanks for rain that washes the earth clean. May our time together also help cleanse us, open us up, that your spirit can speak to us, get inside of us, and transform us, that we can be agents of your love in this world, that we can witness to your love to all those we encounter, that we can be your hands and feet, spreading that love in tangible ways to those in our community who are most in need. God, as we continue this study, the book of Daniel, help us to understand the way that you still reveal yourself in our world, that we can be part of that revelation as we help to build your kingdom here on earth. Finally, we ask your presence upon all those we love, especially those who need your healing touch, those who are sick, 
those who are even near death, that they feel your presence, that they are uplifted by those who care for them, and they are loved to the end. All this we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, my friends, let's jump on in. Today, we're going to be looking at chapter 10, and chapter 10 is really divided into three sections. It will help us to consume those sections a little bit. Section one is a new vision. Section two is the explanation of the vision. And section three is restored strength for resistance. So this is all going to be about Daniel, as you might guess. And Daniel's going to be having an exchange with Gabriel again, or who we think is Gabriel. And so he's going to receive that vision, get an explanation, and then get renewed strength for the work that he has to do among the Jewish people. Before we get into the specifics of this chapter, I do want to note that chapter 10 brings about a very interesting question of how what happens on earth relates to what's going on in heaven. We know when we say the Lord's Prayer, we pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we say that, and I think for most of us, I, me included, our default opinion of what goes on in heaven sort of looks like perfection or peace or wholeness. Um, I certainly like that kind of view of heaven. When I think of heaven and don't think terribly critically, Heaven to me is this place where all the wrongs are made right, where we find that kind of deep rootedness and peace. What we see in Daniel is a slightly different version of heaven. What we see is an ancient understanding of heaven as kind of being a reflection of what goes on on earth. And this is not unique to the Jewish people. This is very common. It's almost ubiquitous among all the ancient cultures that there is, in a sense, stuff happening on earth that is then reflected in the divine realm, so to speak. We see that in all of the great mythological traditions of the world, Hindi and Egyptian and Greek and Roman and Norse and you know, you name it, all of those great kind of uh, well thought out and well narrated mythological traditions share an understanding that what goes on on earth is reflected within the gods in that divine sense, right? When there's drama on earth, there's drama in heaven. When there's drama between the gods, then it's kind of reflected on earth between leaders of different empires. We get a sense of that here in Daniel. Chapter 10 really introduces this idea that there's a battle going on, and this heavenly battle is reflected in an earthly battle. And sometimes those boundaries get crossed, and we have heavenly agents come down to effectively wage war or fight battles with earthly agents. That's the vision that we really see here in Daniel chapter 10, and we'll continue to see through chapters 11 and 12. So just a note on that. Um, another note that I want to bring up is who fights those battles? Who really represents God on earth? And we get this image of a chief prince in the person of Michael. Now, Michael as we certainly know at St. Michael and All Angels, is an angel, and in fact is an archangel. And here in Daniel, we are introduced to Michael as the chief 
prince. Now, interestingly, the word prince is, that's a perfectly fine translation, but if we dig down into what that Hebrew word really means, it really means the king's representative. It's somebody that has the full authority of the king in order to go and do work, an emissary, a representative, um, perhaps a, what we might term today like an ambassador. Michael is a chief representative, a chief ambassador or a chief prince for God. We see that Hebrew word as sar, which becomes a Greek word ser. And of course we know the word seraphim there is, it's all linked together, sar, ser, seraphim. And so what has happened in our tradition is that Michael has become not only an angel, but a chief angel or an archangel. That is introduced here in Daniel chapter 10. We're going to talk a bit more about Michael as we get to the end of chapter 10. Um, but just note that when we say prince, as we read through this, it's okay but I think we need a bit more context than just simply the word prince. It really is the representative with all the authority of the king or of God. So let's jump in to chapter 10. I should note that we got lots of great questions this past week, and I will get to some of those questions near the end of our study today, but I wanted to jump on into chapter 10 today rather than starting with Q&A. So let's look, chapter 10, beginning at verse one. Ready? We're going to get Daniel's new vision. Chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. The word was true, and it concerned a great conflict. He understood the word, having received understanding in the vision. So this very first verse is almost like a summary statement, right? We get a third person um, statement here. So we say a word was revealed to Daniel, not I received a word. We're going to flip back to first person in the next verse. But right here in this verse, we get basically a summary of what's going to happen in chapter 10. Daniel received a vision. The vision was about a great conflict. And he was explained, the vision was explained to Daniel um, as part of the vision itself which is a little interesting. So effectively, while Daniel's receiving the vision, Daniel also receives the explanation of the vision. All right, so we've got all of that in the first verse of chapter 10. I should also note that we are now in the time of King Cyrus of Persia. So if you've been tracking this, you know that we have effectively gone from Belshazzar to Darius and now to Cyrus, right? Chapters eight, nine, and 10. In chapter 10, we are now beyond the fall of the Babylonian Empire. So remember just one second that the Babylonians conquered the Assyrians, the Babylonians came down, sucked up the leadership of the kingdom of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel, took them into exile. That's the exile that they've been in with the Babylonian Empire. Now the Persian Empire has come out of the east and sacked the Babylonians. Now King Cyrus of Persia or Cyrus the Great has taken over those lands, and as we've noted before, Cyrus is the one that releases the Jewish people from exile and sends them back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now, as we talked at length last week, Daniel is written over the course of, the book of Daniel, I should say, is written over the course of a few centuries. And by written, I don't necessarily mean the bulk, 
but it's at least refined. And so as the centuries go on, little things are tweaked and little summaries are added. This is one of those summaries that could have been added later. We don't really know. And as the book is tweaked, it becomes more and more reflective of hindsight. So Daniel received these visions. Those visions are shared orally, ultimately written down in some form. But then as historic events take place, the way that the vision is understood and the way that the story is told evolves. And more and more hindsight is given, allowing more and more clarity of whatever Daniel received as a vision to connect very specifically to the actual historic events in both Babylon and back in Israel. And we noted that because in the vision with the beasts and then with the ram and the goat, there's clear knowledge of both Babylon, Persia, Greece, and ultimately um, Greece's fall and the kind of disintegration of the Grecian Empire after Alexander the Great. All of that's important for us to note because in this vision, there is knowledge of some hurdles that the Jewish people have to jump upon their return to Jerusalem. Those hurdles include leaders of Persia rotating and effectively not giving the Jewish people as much freedom to do whatever that was that they wanted to do, rebuilding the temple and whatnot, as Cyrus may have given them. So right now, we're in the period of Cyrus the Great, but Daniel is going to be mourning for a period of difficulty because Cyrus is followed by Xerxes, is then followed by Ataxerxes. We're going to talk about it. And Ataxerxes is less amenable to the Jewish people rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem than, say, Cyrus was. <laughs> and I know that was a lot. So just just hang with me. We're going to get there. I just wanted to give you a big high-level look, um, which is effectively that Cyrus is good. Later rulers of Persia aren't quite so good or helpful. And that's what the conflict is that Daniel's vision um, uh, addresses. Okay, so now we are <laughs> as clear as mud. And we're going to go to verse 2 of chapter 10 and then parse all of this out. Verse 2. At that time... I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks. I had eaten no rich food, no meat or wine had entered my mouth, and I had not anointed myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, and as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I looked up and saw a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the roar of a multitude. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. The people who were with me did not see the vision, though a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled and hid themselves. All right, we'll pause there. Daniel has been fasting, and we know that Daniel has been fasting because he's been in mourning for three weeks, 21 days. So why is Daniel in mourning? We're going to handle that first. I should start by saying it's not crystal clear. However, most scholars have interpreted this period of mourning 
to be about the frustrations that the Jewish people had in trying to rebuild Jerusalem because of successors to Cyrus the Great. So as with any empire, if it lasts any length of time, leadership rotates. Cyrus the Great was not emperor forever over the Persians, and he was succeeded by others who took the throne. Now, we, know, we may know about Xerxes in sort of Greek history. One of Xerxes' sons, I think it was his third son, Xerxes, takes over at some point the Persian Empire, and this is before Alexander the Great, remember. And so Xerxes receives the empire from his father and his, um, the patriarchs before him, and he succumbs to a little bit of fear. In the fourth chapter of the book of Ezra, remember I referenced Ezra last week because Ezra tells the story of the Jewish people returning and rebuilding Jerusalem. In the fourth chapter of the book of Ezra, there is a story that is unpacked about how Ataxerxes succumbs to the fear that the Jewish people could rebuild Jerusalem and then become too much of a threat. And so Ataxerxes limits their capacity to rebuild Jerusalem. So whereas Cyrus doesn't see the Jewish people as a threat and so sends them back to Jerusalem to rebuild, later on in the Persian Empire, Ataxerxes sees that maybe the Jewish people could be enough of a threat to not afford them the opportunity to rebuild in total. And so Ataxerxes passes an edict that effectively says you can't rebuild the temple in Jerusalem like you want to. It is possible, and many scholars think likely, that Daniel's mourning period has to do with the frustration of being limited by Ataxerxes after having been given so much freedom by Cyrus. Now remember that we have to take all these visions and prophecies together. Daniel knows that Jeremiah, a prophet before the exile, said that they would be in exile for doing bad stuff for 70 years. Remember the whole 70 of sevens and all that stuff last week? Daniel has effectively seen that Jeremiah's prophecy has come true. Daniel has this great faith in God that what God has promised or what God has revealed through the prophets will come true. And so in effect, Daniel has been heartened by the Persians coming in and sacking the Babylonians and Cyrus sending them back to Jerusalem because everything seems to fit with the prophetic tradition that they had inherited. But then they get back to Jerusalem, they start to rebuild and they're trying to rebuild the temple. And then one of Cyrus's successors, Ataxerxes, takes away some of their freedoms. And effectively, Daniel is mourning because he doesn't understand what's going on. And so Daniel, in a sense, is asking God for a new revelation, for a new vision. Daniel really is going to God to say, what is going on? And that's what the next vision is all about. God comes to Daniel, reveals a vision to Daniel, so that Daniel is able then to understand the frustrating period of time that follows Cyrus the Great. You with me? Okay. If you're not, ask a question. Because if you've got a question or if I've left something unclear, somebody else in our group is going to feel equally unclear. So be bold. Ask a good question.
At this point, Daniel's vision comes to him after a fast. So Daniel's fasted 21 days, and fasting is a very common way of trying to cleanse oneself of the world, effectively. Allowing the stuff of the world to be taken out of our physical bodies. Fasting is a part of almost every major religious tradition. We certainly have it in Christianity. We see that in Lent. Lent has always had some component of fasting to it because effectively when we allow our bodies to be cleansed in a fast, we gain clarity. And if none of you, if if any of you have, I'm sorry, if you haven't done a fast in the past, and you're physically able to do so, you obviously have to be careful based on physical health. But if you're able to do so, I would encourage you to try a fast at some point because although you're hungry for a bit, usually within a day or two, you just get this amazing clarity. The longest fast I've ever done is five days. Um, And that's no food. Drinking, yes, do drink. Um, But once you go beyond 24 to 48 hours, man, mental clarity is incredible. And so I think for ancient peoples, there was a sense of fasting as a means of really seeing the world for what it is, getting serious clarity, and if granted, receiving a clear picture of the divine, right? God, or in other cultures, gods, were able to break through the world and give visions and give clarity, hopefulness, whatever, to the human people through a fast. So Daniel is effectively doing this 21-day fast so that he can figure out what is going on. Day 24 comes, and Daniel gets his vision, gets his revelation from God. Now, what Daniel sees is important for us to note. So if we look back at verse 5, Daniel sees a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold, and his body is like beryl, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs the gleaming of burnished bronze, and his voice, the sound of his words, sounds like a roar. All right, hold that image in your mind, and then you don't have to turn to it, but we're going to look at the first chapter of Revelation. We're going to start with Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. Just listen to this. Now we're talking about John seeing a vision, right? I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a gold sash across his chest. His head and hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Did you catch all that? John's vision and revelation He sees a man, like the Son of Man, who's clothed in a robe with some kind of sash of gold. His hair is white, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze, and a voice like the sound of many waters. Sounds like a roar to me. Daniel's vision of this man is very close to John's vision of the Son of Man. Interesting, isn't it? Daniel's vision ends up being of Michael, 
the archangel. And of course, we know in Revelation, John's vision ends up being Jesus. So what I want us to hold here, and we're just not going to unpack it a lot today, but we're only a few weeks away from Revelation chapter 1, so don't stress. I want you to hold on to Daniel chapter 10, this vision of a man who looks just like the vision that John receives in the first chapter of Revelation. Because as I've noted, in order to understand Revelation best, we really have to know Daniel. Because John knew Daniel really well. And John's vision in Revelation cannot be disconnected from Daniel's visions because John would have been so heavily influenced by Daniel's visions. So hold that together just as a little note. And we're going to continue with Daniel's revelation here. That's the end of the first section of the actual vision. The next section we're going to get to moves into the explanation of the vision. And I see that we've got one question um, from Liz that says, you know, how does one go about anointing oneself? Um, It's a good question. So what Daniel's implying here, almost certainly, is the idea of a cleansing anointing in worship. So depending on the period of time in Jewish tradition, um, there are different methods by which faithful Jewish people, typically men, would have gone through a ritual cleansing process in order to then worship Yahweh. At some periods in time, that anointing process would have included the use of oil. So if you think about um, the area of the world that they're in, not necessarily in Babylon, but certainly down in Israel, it's relatively arid, and part of the cleansing would actually be quite literally cleaning the sand and the dust off of the body. So there are baths that Jews would enter in order to cleanse themselves of literally the dirt, the dust, um, from their travels to the temple. And after having done so, they would be ritualistically clean in order to go worship God, but occasionally, and in different circumstances, not only would one wash with water, But one would also anoint. Uh, Anoint has such a religious connotation to it, and of course it is religious, but it's not kind of the ritualistic anointing that a priest would do at, say, baptism or potentially at, um, say, the end of life at the point of death. Instead, this would be almost a blessing of the body in order to worship well. And you could do that to yourself. Um, Nothing saying you couldn't. I think depending on the formality of the occasion, you might have a priest do that for you, but certainly isn't limited only to priests most of the time. When, When you say anything about Judaism, it's thousands of years of tradition and culture. So you can't ever say that one thing or one way is is the way because it just depends on the time period that you're in, Um, kind of like any other religion that's been around for a while. But the anointing would be part of a ritual cleansing in order to go to God in a worshipful way. That's really what the anointing was. Good question. Now we're going to go into the second section of today's study, the explanation. So jump to verse 8. 
So I, Daniel, was left alone to see this great vision. My strength left me, and my complexion grew deathly pale, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and when I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a trance, face to the ground. But then a hand touched me and roused me to my hands and knees. He said to me, Daniel, greatly beloved, pay attention to the words that I am going to speak to you. Stand on your feet, for I have now been sent to you. So while he was speaking this word to me, I stood up, trembling. All right, so we'll pause there. Daniel is in a place by the river, right? And presumably, Daniel is with other people, right? Because other people run away and they hide. So Daniel is likely gone down to the river to do some kind of work. You know, maybe it's cleansing, maybe it's getting some water, maybe it's fishing, whatever that is. Um, And Daniel's there with other people. And Daniel has been mourning, but the fasting period's over, right? That ended a few days ago. On the 24th day, Daniel receives the vision that he's been hoping to receive. And he's there by the lake and something happens where the people around him begin to tremble. Now they don't see the vision, but they feel something. And so they run scared and hide. But Daniel is effectively put in a trance, falls face down on the ground, and then is lifted back up by someone who gives him the strength to stand trembling. Now, Tradition says this person is Gabriel. Now, we've already met Gabriel before chapter 10. Gabriel is the messenger prince, the messenger angel. Michael is the fighting prince or the battling angel. And so they tag team in different ways in order to achieve different results. In the tradition, Daniel has received the vision and the explanation from the messenger, from Gabriel, even though it's not specifically Gabriel, um, it's fine. There's no reason not to say that it is. Gabriel lifts Daniel up and helps him to understand what it is that he's seeing. Gabriel gives him strength. And did you notice what Gabriel says here? Daniel, greatly beloved, pay attention. Does that kind of sound to me, or it sounds to me, sort of like what Gabriel says to Mary? Mary, beloved, full of grace, listen to my words. Gabriel, you know, we should probably talk a little bit about angels at some point. I'm really not prepared to do that right now, but I think it would be great to talk about angels. So we'll do that at some point when we're in Revelation. I will say, however, that angels are are in the biblical tradition, not fat babies in diapers with wings, right? Angels are not sweet. They're not passive. Angels are scary. Angels are large and physically intimidating. And so if you think of that about angels, then it makes sense that Daniel would effectively fall to the ground, that Mary, when Gabriel comes to Mary, would be scared, trembling. That's how God's princes go about doing work. Here in this moment, although Gabriel might appear very intimidating, Gabriel has effectively kind of brought Daniel back up and given him this new strength in order to better understand the vision. Gabriel is, after all, the messenger. He wants to make sure that Daniel understands what's going on. 
So Gabriel touches Daniel and that touch brings his attention back to the messenger. So let's turn back to verse 12. He said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia opposed me 21 days. So Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and have come to help you understand what is to happen to your people at the end of days. All right, we'll pause there again. Gabriel says what Gabriel always says, do not be afraid. And then Gabriel says, some stuff's happening that you don't really know much about, but it will be to your good. Gabriel says, I've heard you. God has heard you. And in the 21 days of your fast, the prince of Persia resisted us, resisted me. So Gabriel brought Michael in order to battle the prince of Persia so that Gabriel could then make this revelation to Daniel. Did you catch all that? It's sort of amazing. Um, Gabriel, God hears that Daniel really needs this revelation, right? Daniel is stressed and anxious and trying to understand what is going on because the Jewish people thought they were sort of in the clear to rebuild their city. But Gabriel on his own was somehow resisted by the prince of Persia, a real person, not an angel. And so Gabriel needed reinforcements and went and got his friend Michael. And Michael was able to overcome the prince of Persia so that Gabriel could break through and give this revelation to Daniel. That's amazing. It is a way of understanding the function of heaven and earth differently than many of us think of it. When we read Daniel for the literal story that it is, which is a way to read it, we see that heaven and earth are in this cosmic battle. And, and Gabriel even says to Daniel that he wants Daniel to understand what's going to happen to his people at the end of days. So we get this nod to end of days in the same way that we've seen in previous chapters by Gabriel's revelation. So Michael, the fighter, is off fighting the prince of Persia at Xerxes, and Gabriel's able to come to Daniel with this revelation. Now, I don't know if I wanna say much more about that. Mm -mm -mm. No, I think I've said enough. So we'll just pause there, because that's the end of that middle section before we go on to what then Daniel receives from Gabriel at the end of chapter 10. Reminder, if you've got some questions, let me know. All right, let's keep going. Chapter 10, verse 18, and this will be the third section, the strength section. So just a reminder, Daniel is exhausted, right? He's been lifted back up, he's paying attention, but he's still completely tapped out and has no strength. Verse 18, again, one in human form touched me and strengthened me. He said, do not fear, greatly beloved, you are safe, be strong and courageous. And when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. 
Then he said, Do you know why I've come to you? Now I must return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I am through with him, the prince of Greece will come. But I am to tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is no one with me who contends against these princes except Michael, your prince. All right. This exchange, again, points very clearly to the way that Persia has effectively not kept up their end of the agreement. Cyrus has said, go rebuild your city, but successors to Cyrus have reneged on that. Now, what we see is that God's getting involved. And effectively, God is fighting on behalf of the Israelites against Persia. But did you catch what they said? We're going to go back and fight the prince of Persia. When I'm through with him, the prince of Greece will come. So let's be clear. As Daniel's vision is refined over the generations, there is clarity around who does and does not win each battle. So if God helps overthrow the Babylonian Empire, why wouldn't God help overthrow the Persian Empire, the Persian Empire that ultimately is holding the Israelites back? We certainly know that the Greeks won't be any better. And then, of course, after that, the Romans won't be any better. And so what we have teed up here is a very important understanding of what salvation, being saved, really means. Chapter 10 of Daniel has set up Michael to be the savior of the Israelites. Michael, in a sense, is a Messiah figure in this story because Israel is unable on their own to overcome their oppressors. And so God sends a deliverer, a savior, in the form of Archangel Michael to save them from the Persians. And yet, Gabriel says very clearly, after the Persians are going to come the Greeks. So the writers of Daniel seem to understand that although the Persian influence, the Persian limitations will ultimately be, be taken away, they're not the only people who will oppress the Israelites, that the Greeks will follow the Persians at some point in the future. All of that is a real interesting way of understanding both Daniel on its own and its relationship to Revelation. This idea of Messiah evolves and changes over time. We certainly get Messiah, Savior, Deliverer, that's going to look a lot like Moses from the prophets, right? The prophets talk about a deliverer that will come and deliver Israel. That deliverer could look like David, but almost certainly at the early point would look like someone like Moses. And so here we get a vision in Daniel where that deliverer is an angel, not a person. But that angel is effectively an emissary from God. That angel is one of God's princes, not perhaps literally related, but absolutely of the same being. God has sent his tr most trusted archangel in order to fight on behalf of the Israelites. So it's not a big step 
to say if God would send his most trusted emissary in Archangel Michael, that God would at some point send in full revelation what we understand as the Son of God in the person of Jesus. God has sent people, prophets first, then angels, so then why wouldn't God effectively take the next step and send the incarnation of his divinity in the person of Jesus? See how that thread kind of connects all the way through? It helps us to understand why the Jews in the first century would begin to understand Jesus the way that they did because they have built this tradition over time that absolutely includes revelations like this in the book of Daniel. All right, let's pause and see if there are any questions either in the chat fields or from last week that may be helpful to us as we continue moving through in this this study. So David says, is there a harbinger for the Romans? So I'm going to assume you say, is there any indication here um, that Daniel knows about the Romans? And the answer really is no. It's very clear that the book of Daniel knows Babylonians, Persians, and Greeks. But there is no indication that the book of Daniel knows anything about the Romans, which is one of the reasons why most scholars would say that the book of Daniel was finished by about 160, 170 um, BCE. It's not, it doesn't really get too close to where the Roman Empire comes and takes over for the Greeks. I think last week or two weeks ago, I don't remember which, I discussed the way that the Greek Empire, kind of the Hellenistic Empire functioned, which is Alexander the Great comes on the scene and in a very short period of time, Alexander takes the Greek army and just swamps all of the empires all over the Middle East and Central Asia. I mean, it's just like a flood, a tidal wave from the West, from Greece. But Alexander does not live long, right? He is not an old emperor. He dies relatively young, and then his sons, successors, whatever, effectively divide what was the Greek Empire into four regions. And we get one of those regions that more or less is in charge of what we would think of today as the Middle East and kind of North Africa and Egypt. That ruler begins to give the Jews problems. And so Daniel seems to be very clear that the Greeks are no friend to the Israelites, excuse me. However, the Greek empire, when it transitions to the Roman empire, the Romans are really no better. And Daniel does not seem to have any indication that that transition from the Greeks has happened. So Elizabeth says, um, but the Jewish people didn't believe Jesus was an important figure. Curious as Michael was sent for them. Yeah, um, so Elizabeth's question is a bit, I might restate it. So, um, how do I wanna tackle this? Elizabeth says the Jewish people didn't believe that Jesus was an important figure. Um, Yes and no. So the Jewish leaders don't believe that Jesus is what 
the followers of Jesus believed he was. That is true. But to say that Jews in general don't believe Jesus was important is a little too far. I mean, I think if you were to talk to any any moderate to progressive um, Jewish groups today or friends of yours who are Jewish, um, Jesus is not unimportant. Um, is Jesus the Messiah? No. But is Jesus a great teacher? Sure. Um, Michael, here in Daniel, there's not a lot I can say to make sense of Michael being this Messiah figure in the book of Daniel, except just to point it out. You know, the description of the Son of Man in Revelation and the description of the man sent to battle the Persians in Daniel is nearly identical. I mean, it's not verbatim, but even the way that you talk about the gold and the bronze and the sound of the voice, I mean, it's, it's obviously linked. So it's important for us simply to know that Michael was, at the time, a very important figure when it came to God's engagement on earthly matters and God's willingness, in a sense, to engage in earthly conflict. That's really all to say. Well, and I should, I guess, add as a caveat. This is a group of people understanding things going on in the world as God's engagement. I do think it's problematic when we read something like Daniel, especially something like chapter 10, and say, well, God did it then, why won't God do it now? Or why did God do X, Y, and Z? Because remember, the better question is why did the people writing this book think God did or did not do a thing. Not whether God did or didn't do a thing or why wouldn't God do that same thing now. Because these stories are inspired. These stories are faithful representations of revelations that people had. It's a bridge too far to say that it is literal, inerrant truth about what God did do or God did say. Does that make sense? Um, Let's jump into a few of the questions that I received last week. We've got about 10 minutes, and some of these questions are quite good and won't take too, too long to answer. Um, And if you've got more follow-up questions to the end of chapter 10 in Daniel, then pop them in so we can address them today. All right. We had one question about a comment I made last week regarding forgiveness. Um, And this is just the specific question is good, but the, the broader purpose behind the question, I think, is really nice and important. So, um, Marilee says that when she was growing up and in the King James and even the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, when Jesus in Matthew says to Peter's question that you're not to forgive seven times, but you're to forgive 70 times seven times, why then in the NRSV, what I read last week, has it gone from 70 times seven to 77? (laughs) Um, And I I love what Mary Lee says. Um, By comparison, 77 times just seems so minimal versus 70 times seven. And I love that, Mary Lee, because I don't think I have ever even come close to having to forgive someone 
um, 77 times, but your point is well made. Why the change? And I think it's important for us to understand the way that translations occur. So we talked, I've talked about this in other studies. I don't know that we've done it quite in depth this year, but effectively, when you translate from one language to another, you will absolutely lose some of the context and there's nothing you can do about it. You can do your absolute best to make it as contextual as you can and you will still lose something. Here's an example of the, the Greek in Matthew points to 70, but it could also imply 77 and in the past, the idea of 70 times seven really seemed gigantic. As I noted before, the numbers are really not important. It's meant to be a magnitude. So when Peter says seven times, he really means that that's a lot. And Jesus's response is, oh, you think that's a lot? Well, actually what God's asking you to do is 77 or 70 times seven or some gigantic number that goes way beyond the number that you thought was a big number. That's really the point. And so resist the need for the math <laughs> to be absolutely right because it really can be a distraction. The point in that exchange is forgive always. There is no limit. And if 77 times forgiveness is reached, keep going. Because Jesus absolutely did not mean only 77. And by 78, you can just be like, done. No, that's not what he meant. He really means all the time, every time, over and over again until the end. So we have more questions. Let's see. <laughs> this, is, this is a good one. Um, Sharon writes that, Understanding that God loves the Jews, what's the reason for having them live under terrible rulers for so long a period of time and then other rulers allowing them relative peace? So this really gets at an interpretive understanding of the Bible. I do not want you to read the Bible literally, right? I do not want you to think that the Bible needs to be literal. And this is a massive ask. Because for most people, most of the time, the Bible is taken, everything, literally. When the story of the Jewish people is written, finally written down, it's important for us to know that everything is really in hindsight. When the books of the Torah are written down, it's hundreds of years after the events that they depict. When the book of Daniel is written, it is very possibly hundreds of years after the stories that they depict. It's very important that we wrestle with the idea of not being literal in our readings of, of the Old Testament especially, because the distance in time is so significant and the traditions are oral. And you know, it sounds cheap, but it's like playing the telephone game. You just simply cannot 
get to the end of the game of telephone and have the same story as when you began. It doesn't mean that it is untrue. It just means that truth is, must, is most, much deeper than literal, which is how we tend to look at truth. The way I've described this in the past is the idea of journalistic truth, of factual observation, like what we hope media would do, even though most media doesn't, um, that idea of objective truth is really not biblical. That idea of objective truth is really, I mean, kind of like an 18th century, I mean, I'm sorry, a 19th century construct where you can actually record things historically and report on them accurately where there is historic factual accuracy. Stories that we get in the Bible have an accuracy of truth that has nothing to do with the literal facts, but instead is a bit more like philosophy or poetry, where the truth is not at all about the literal nature. The truth is much deeper than that. And so when you read stories in the Bible, if you read them literally, you're actually reading them shallowly. The Bible is not meant to be read literally. The Bible is meant to be deeper than literal and to get at a truth that is way more profound and life-changing and life-giving than just simple facts. And that's difficult for us because it is a different way of reading. But it's sort of like when we see poetry, we naturally pivot in our mind to reading poetry a certain way that is different than prose. If we read something that's nonfiction, we know that we read it differently than something that is fiction. The Bible is a very specific kind of literature most of the time. Not all the time, but most of the time. And knowing how to read the Bible in that literary perspective is super helpful to us in our own discipleship because we don't need to get distracted by small inconsistencies, but instead go much deeper to a truth that God has been trying to get through to us over generations and over millennia through prophets and visionaries and even Jesus himself. Make sense? I think there was one other... No, that's probably about... Well, there's one question here um, that is super specific and may not have occurred to many of you. Um, but in Daniel chapter 9, verse 11, there's a reference to a curse and an oath that is effectively why the Israelites, the Jewish people, are in exile to begin with. Um, and that harkens back to a curse that is noted in Leviticus. I wrote it down. Leviticus chapter 26. Um, in Leviticus chapter 26, there is a very clear statement that's part of the development of Jewish law with Moses and the other leaders, um, where there is meant to be no idol, no construction of an idol, no idolatry of any kind. And effectively what happens in the kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, they pivot away from a faithfulness that is independent of idols to one that begins to incorporate 
idolatry. And Daniel's writers, in hindsight, have answered one of those important questions. How did we end up here? Why are we in exile? What happened? They answer that by going back to the law and in self-reflection, noting that they really strayed from the oath that they made. They, they strayed into what was articulated in Leviticus as a curse, and functionally, their idolatry has allowed the curse to manifest itself in the exile. And so that kind of gets at your question. And those are not all the questions that we received this past week, um, but a few that shed a bit of light um, on Daniel. And so we've basically reached the end of our time today, and I'm really glad that you all have joined me again. A reminder that we're going to finish Daniel next week. So you've been with us for weeks and weeks in Daniel, so don't miss the last study. And Mary Lessman's going to be here. She's a great teacher for those of you who do not know her. I think you'll really enjoy class with her. And we're going to be looking at chapters 11 and 12 next week. And then two weeks from today, we kick off with Revelation. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Stay safe, stay healthy, and God bless you. I'll see you soon. Bye.